All righty, good morning. Good morning. Don't ask me to play Twister. It's great to be back up here after a couple of weeks off. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Rick for, for covering for a few weeks. I am rested and renewed and um, have another great text for you all this morning. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4. As we continue in our study through this great epistle, this morning we'll be looking at verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 19. <clears throat> and I just want to first uh, read our verses once through together, and then after we're going to look at some of the immediate context, see what principles Peter's teaching these first century persecuted believers and see how they apply to us today. So let's get right into it. We are in verse 12, and this is the word of the living and true God. The Apostle Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or, or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, uh, before we begin, I do want to remind you of the context. Uh, Peter is writing to a group of first century believers, Christians who have been scattered throughout the provinces of Asia Minor, known as today as modern day Turkey. And having been falsely blamed for the burning of Rome, the Caesar Nero has unleashed upon the church an unprecedented persecution. And when I say persecution, these men and women and children were being hard-pressed from every side. In fact, Tatticus, the Roman historian, reported that Nero would cover Christians in pitch or in oil and then set fire to them while still alive, while using them as human torches to light up his garden parties. He would serve them up in the skins of wild animals so that his Hunting dogs could tear them to shreds. Followers of Christ were relentlessly beaten, whipped, and nailed to crosses to die slow, drawn-out, horrific deaths. Over the next 200 years, Christians were imprisoned, seared, broiled, burned, scourged, stoned, hung, some were lacerated with hot knives, while others were thrown onto the horns of wild bulls. In his book, Persecution in the Early Church, Dr. Herbert Workman wrote the following. 
for 200 years from Nero on, the leaders among the Christians were branded as anarchists and atheists and were hated accordingly. For 200 years, to become a Christian meant the great renunciation, the joining of a despised and persecuted sect, the swimming against the tide of popular prejudice, the coming under the ban of the empire, the possibility that at any moment was imprisonment and death under its most fearful forms. For 200 years, he that would follow Christ must count the cost and be prepared to pay the same with his liberty and life. For 200 years, the mere profession of Christianity was a crime. Christianus sum, which in Latin communicates, I'm a Christian or I'm a believer, was almost the one plea for which there was no forgiveness. For the name itself in periods of stress, not a few, meant the rack, the blazing shirt of pitch, the lion, the panther, or in the case of maidens, in the infamy, worse than death, end quote. This is the context in which Peter the Apostle is writing into. And so as this new wave of persecution was about to break onto the churches of Asia Minor, the Lord steadies his church as through the Apostle Peter, he gives four features on how believers are to respond to unjust suffering. And if we can get a grip on these today, it will certainly go a long way on helping us to deal with suffering for righteousness sake in our own lives. Peter tells them basically four things are necessary if you want to be triumphant in a fiery ordeal. He says that number one, expect it. Number two, rejoice in it. Number three, evaluate the cause of your suffering. And number four, entrust it to God. Expect it, rejoice in it, evaluate its cause, and entrust it to God. <clears throat> now I'm going to be making this a two-part sermon as there is a lot to cover in these uh, eight verses. So we'll focus on points number one and, and two today, and Lord willing, points number three and four will be for next week. Well, let's get started with point number one, as Peter tells us in verse 12 that we should expect suffering. We should expect suffering. As followers of Christ, we should expect to suffer. This is an exciting principle to teach. I don't know anyone who loves to suffer. But it's a biblical principle that we find throughout the New Testament. So we need to understand how we are to apply this. Notice what Peter says in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The point here is simple, to expect suffering. Expect it. I'm shocked how many Christians are shocked when they go through suffering. Don't think it's something strange. Expect it. And we should know this certainly by now, as Peter has consistently said through this epistle, that persecution for Christian in various forms is inevitable. In fact, the surprise would be if they didn't come. And we see this teaching all throughout the scriptures. For example, we're going to look at some of these. Um, the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, 
do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't, don't be surprised by it. Don't be shocked by this. Don't be surprised. What did Jesus say? All throughout John's gospel, from chapter 15 on, he repeated the scene. John 15, 18 through 19, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Paul, writing to Timothy, said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will. So if you never face any persecution... You have to ask yourself, are you living a life that's honoring God? And so Peter is echoing the instruction of all the New Testament writers. We'll look at some more of these as we go along. But when he says that we're not to be surprised when suffering and persecution comes our way, this is echoed by the other writers. Godly lives lived in an ungodly world confronting the world. We become a kind of unwelcome conscience that the world despises and if we proclaim the name of Christ loudly enough and certainly boldly enough we inevitably become offensive to an ever increasing intolerant world this beloved is the cost of discipleship this is the cost of following Jesus at some point it's going to cost you something and certainly that's what Jesus had in mind when he was speaking in Luke chapter 14 verse 28 for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it or what king goes to war with another king without first counting the cost and assessing his troops whether he is able with 10,000 to meet he who comes against him with 20,000 so beloved do not be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised. This is the cost of following Christ. Now, as I mentioned earlier, suffering has been a reoccurring theme for Peter throughout much of his first epistle. In chapter 1, in verse 6, he said, In this you greatly rejoice, so now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Then in chapter 2, verse 19, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you examples that you might follow in his steps. Then in chapter 3, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Chapter 3, verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Again, chapter 4, verse 1, we saw this a couple weeks ago. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh 
has ceased from sin. And here Peter was saying that suffering for righteousness' sake um, has a kind of sanctifying, um, refining effect upon our lives. That as we follow in Christ's steps and we are partakers in the suffering for Christ, there's a humility there. There's a um, denying of self there. There's a taking up your cross and following me there. We must arm ourselves, Peter says, with the same way of thinking. So throughout this whole epistle, and this continues in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, um, he repeatedly comes back to this reality to expect suffering. Don't be surprised by it that you're facing persecution for your faith. In fact, expect it. Expect it. And Peter keeps beating on this drum because he knows to a watching fallen world it matters greatly how we respond to unjust suffering. This matters for the outside world, how well they see us suffering. If one little thing happens to us and it just wipes us out, they go, wow, that's, that's quite a faith that they got there. So it determines how effective our evangelistic testimony will be because who's going to listen to your testimony or are you sharing the power of the gospel when every time you go through some small little thing in your life, it's like, ah! So, we are understanding already this far the epistle that Peter is concerned with that we see suffering in a right perspective. So, Scripture says it is inevitable that at some point along the way, the, the faithful Christian will certainly suffer um, some form of persecution. And that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about suffering um, for righteousness' sake. Suffering because you proclaim the name of Christ boldly. And what's amazing is the Lord's disciples were all well aware of this fact, and yet once they were filled with the Spirit of the living God, man, they never looked back. They never hesitated. Before, well, quite a few of them had problems, didn't they? But, but what we see in Acts chapter 2 in the coming of the Spirit, these are changed men filled with the Spirit of the living God, and they took the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, baptizing them all in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus had commanded. And I think one of the reasons is the disciples were so fearless and bold in their proclamation and their preaching of the gospel is because they believed what Jesus said about persecution. They heard and believed exactly what he said. For example, early in his ministry at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ah, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And we know from Scripture that the apostles, in fact, did suffer a great cost for the name of Christ. And let me share with you just a couple of the examples that we have of kinds of the kinds of suffering that the apostles experienced Christians endured. <clears throat> I'm gonna go through these pretty quickly. Matthew 10, verse 14 says that you'll be rejected by men. Matthew 10, 17 says that you very likely may end up scourged. Matthew 10, verse 22, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. 
Matthew 10, 21 through 36, you'll be hated by your own relatives. John chapter 15, verse 18, you'll be hated by the world. And Acts chapter 4, chapter 5, and Acts chapter 12 reminds us many Christians will endure imprisonment for the name. Um, Acts chapter 5, verse 41, we will suffer shame for the name of Christ. In Acts chapter 7, some of us will endure martyrdom as Stephen did. In Acts chapter 14, verse 19, Paul is stoned, dragged outside the city, left for dead. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9 says, we will be made a spectacle to men. 1 Corinthians 4, 12 through 13, Paul says, he was reviled, persecuted, and slandered. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 4 through 5, Paul endured afflictions, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, and hunger. Now, that's just a little list of the kinds of things that a Christian can expect to endure in a culture that is non-Christian or a pagan nation or world. And so, with the direction that our own nation is in fact heading in. Um, we shouldn't be surprised by these various trials as though something strange were happening to you, but rather we should expect them. All right, well, let's go back to our text. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And notice how it begins. Peter starts this um, really new section. This book can be break, broken up into three sections and if you were to do it like that, this is the third section through the end of the book. And each of the following two sections, he started the same way, saying, Beloved, literally um, divinely loved ones, you who are greatly loved, it's a pastoral word. I love using the beloved of God to remind us who we are. And it's a pastoral word I'm certainly used with compassion and tenderness and love for the family of God, and it reveals this affection that Peter has for these suffering believers. Um, it is a reminder that they are loved by Peter, um, but even more than that, um, that they are the beloved of God. Remember, they might not have been the chosen of the world, but they are the chosen of God. And that, my brothers and sisters, is a, a sweet pillow um, to rest your weary soul on in the midst of persecution. No matter what's going on in the world, you are still the beloved of God. And I suppose it would have been a very real temptation in the midst of all this suffering to question the love of God, wouldn't it? God, uh, don't you see our situation? Um, God, do you really love me? Um, if you do, why is this happening? Don't you hear our prayers? And if I can just say, beloved, this is why a, a righteous anger comes over me um, when a prosperity gospel is turned to such a tilt that you will always be healthy, wealthy, um, that has infiltrated the church. Because I could tell you one thing, in 65 AD, you would have been cashing in your chips if that was the gospel that you were presented, that you will never go through difficulty that you will always be rich and healed, always. If somebody had come up to one of these Christians Peter is writing to, 
and said, once you're a follower of Christ, he's going to take care of all your problems. There's nothing that you need to worry about in this world anymore. And then what do you say to them when the very next day someone from the Roman guard has discovered your underground church and three quarters of your brothers and sisters are hauled away off to the Colosseum and put in there in cages and devoured by wild beasts? Or Nero comes and steals your children and rolls them in pitch and strings them up on a tree and lights them on fire right there in front of you. And all you have to do to stop this madness is to deny Christ and claim Caesar as your Lord. Just do it. Just, just turn to Caesar as Lord and we'll stop all this. I mean, you would be tempted, right? God, why aren't you helping us? And in the midst of persecution like that, the enemy certainly would have tempted you like Job's wife did. Curse God and die. Um, haven't you had enough? And so Peter here gives this loving reminder that though this is going on, you are still the beloved of God. You are still the beloved of God and you are still the beloved of the apostle. Beloved, do not be surprised. Don't be surprised by this. Don't be amazed that, that you're going through persecution. Don't be shocked that life is difficult. Don't be surprised when you're passed over for that promotion at work. Don't be surprised when the other employees are hostile towards you and you're ridiculed and, and mocked for your faith. Don't be surprised when your neighbors have stopped coming around after you shared your love for Christ. Don't be surprised, beloved, when the world hates you, 1 John 3.13. Christianity never promises immunity from suffering. It's not in here. In fact, the more that you stand up for divine truth and for the Lord Jesus Christ, the more that you're going to feel the, the, the weight and, and persecution is actually like this, this pressure from every side. The more that you shine the light of Christ, the more it will attract the darkness that will come around. And very likely that you'll experience persecution than the one who's quiet. You become, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, to those who are being saved, an aroma of life to life, and those who are perishing, the aroma of death to death. So, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, what does that mean, the, the fiery trial? Certainly, um, there are many who would suggest, boy, um, was God letting Peter let these Christians know, heads up, Nero's about ready to blame you for this fire? Um, possible. Um, but it's kind of interesting here. This, this Greek word, uh, purosis, it means to burn, but it also means to um, refine. It's used here figuratively as it describes a, a painful um, persecution. Um, but it's also used here and elsewhere of a furnace melting down metal to, to purge it of its impurities. In Psalm 66.10, for example, the psalmist says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. I believe this fiery trial is being used here as a symbol of the affliction the people are under. Though, on the other side of it, God is using it as a process to both purify and to refine his people through the suffering. Through it. We actually saw something similar to this back in chapter 1. If you want to turn back to chapter 1, you'll remember this verse. <clears throat> in verses uh, 6 and 7. 
<coughs> excuse me, I think it's the same concept right here. <coughs> Verse 6, <coughs> it says, in this you greatly rejoice. And he's talking about here that the glory salvation from uh, remember chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter uh, through verse 5. In this he greatly rejoices. Glorious salvation that you have received, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Peter is saying this genuineness of faith, this tested faith you have is more precious than gold that perishes. And just as men use fire to test gold or silver and to refine it, to distinguish whether it was authentic or real or not, Peter says, you likewise have been tested through various trials and have proven to be genuine, authentic. And then he connects their faith he's talking about in the first half of verse 7 to the second half. And this is really incredible. He says this beautiful, refined, genuine faith that you now have will result in praise and glory and honor when at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he says, look, you're, you're willing to endure these various trials here because you know it will prove the genuineness of your faith which is being rewarded at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Back to our verse, the fiery trial here is not just sort of um, any trouble. It's really talking about persecution for your faith, persecution for the sake of righteousness, persecution because your identity is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, but God allows it to come. He allows it to come. Notice verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. So God, we can say, has a purpose in this fiery trial. Peter says it comes upon you to test you. It's a testing. And so just as in chapter 1, God allows the fiery trial to come upon you because it proves the genuineness of your faith. Not to him, to you. As you remain faithful through the testings, through the persecution, and through the fire, and you become refined and stronger as you trust in the Lord more deeper and have that communion with him. Do you remember uh, Jesus with the parable of the, the soils? If you don't know the story, um, you can turn to Mark 4 um, to look at it. Jesus tells a, a parable of a farmer sowing some seeds at his farm. And Jesus says this farmer goes out, sows some seeds, and some of the seed fell on rocky ground where there wasn't much uh, soil but immediately a little sprout uh, jumped up because the soil was so shallow but because the seed had fallen on rocky soil the roots couldn't get down into that that nutrient rich soil and down to where the water is and so needless to say the next day after the sun had risen scorched it burnt that plant to a crisp because the plant had no deep roots and after being burned up it withered away without producing any fruit and what the Lord was uh, describing is the kind of person who maybe comes to a church service such as this and he or she hears the message of the gospel they hear the good news and they have this emotional response to it 
and they even receive it with joy. But because they have no firm root and the soil of their heart has never really been plowed up, as soon as affliction and persecution arises, immediately, Jesus says, they fall away. And this is exactly what Peter's saying. Suffering for the sake of Christ reveals who's genuine, doesn't it? So one of the ways that we can know, those who are not truly regenerated will ultimately fall away. They're not going to stick around for persecution. Are you kidding me? So it comes upon you for your testing. And it's an essential feature of God working in you as he refines and solidifies your faith. Humbling you makes you totally dependent on him. And that's a good process for you and I to go through. So the first thing we need to be aware of concerning suffering, expect it. You'll do a lot better if you're expecting it. Versus, where did this come from? All right? Second, Peter wants us to get harder. Rejoice in it. <laughs> How many eye rolls? Four, five, six. Rejoice in it. Oh, yeah, that's what he says. Not only we expect are to expect it, but we are to, to rejoice in it. And this certainly gets challenging. Notice verses uh, 13 and 14. But rejoice <laughs> insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The word rejoice shows up twice in verse 13. And being that it's in the um, present tense, it's the idea of um, keep on rejoicing. Keep on, continue to rejoice. And this is the right attitude to have in the midst of persecution and affliction and rejection and anything that the world brings against you for the name of Christ. Keep on rejoicing in the Lord. Remember the words of our Lord in Matthew 10, verse 12, I read a few of the verses. Listen to it again. Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. True believers. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus says, rejoice and be what? Glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, you're in good company. Just as the prophets before you. So rejoice in it. And keep on rejoicing. Now Peter lists a future motivation um, in our verse um, to rejoice in. And, and a, a present one. Um, let's go back to First Peter and first look at the the future uh, motivation. That's what it says back in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Did you get that? To the degree that you share in his suffering, you will share in his glory when he returns. And so as you share in the sufferings for Christ now, Keep on rejoicing, for when he 
arrives in glory, you will really rejoice. Now let's talk about this phrase that begins verse 13, because we really kind of have to unpack this. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's suffering. What exactly does that mean? In so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Well, for, for stars, the Lord Jesus Christ suffered at the hands of evil men, right? Um, and without using that as our same answer, um, why did he suffer? Well, for one, we could say he suffered because he confronted our world of its sin, right? Um, for men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And Jesus, being the sinless son of the living God, suffered because he spoke truth, he confronted their lies and sins, because he always did what was right. And so when Peter says, but rejoice in as far as you share Christ's sufferings, it isn't that we're sharing in the redemptive sufferings of Christ, of course not. It isn't that we're sharing certainly in the atoning uh, sacrifices of Christ. That's not what Peter is saying here. He's referring to believers experiencing the same kind of suffering that Jesus endured. When we stand up for God's truth as Christ did, when we boldly preach and declare God's word as Christ did, when we call sin, sin as Christ did, and when we don't compromise as Christ didn't, then as persecution comes, you begin to share in the same kind of sufferings Christ endured as he suffered for righteousness' sake. So don't be perplexed, don't be um, discouraged, don't be um, downhearted, um, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. Because you are having this, this privilege to share in the same kind of cipher, uh, sufferings that Jesus Christ, your Lord, endured. What a privilege. Amen? I mean, so when you as a Christian suffer, you are sharing in those same kinds of suffering when you suffer at the hands of hostile, rejecting, mocking, unregenerate sinners, and you should rejoice, beloved. What a privilege. Now, Paul certainly understood this, didn't he? Remember what he says at the end of that great chapter, Galatians chapter 6. Listen to his testimony. Galatians 6, verse 17, he says, From now on, let no one trouble me. Listen to this. For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, what's he mean by the marks of the Lord Jesus? He means the scars that I have received as I have been beaten repeatedly across my back, my head, my legs with scourgings and whips when they beat me with rods. All of the scars that I have received in my life are the marks of Christ. But why does he call them the marks of Christ? Because he received them all for proclaiming Christ's gospel and for following Christ. And he's saying, that's my badge of honor. You want to see my trophy case? Taken off my shirt. By grace of God, I won't do that to you. But Paul, it's like, take off his shirt. You want to see my, my trophy case and my scars, my torn up back. These are the marks for Christ. He proudly suffered for the name of Christ. They would have given him to Christ if he's here. But because he's not here, they'll give him to you. In Philippians chapter 1, 
verse 29, Paul again reminds us all that it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake and to experience the same conflict, Paul says, which you saw in me. Anyone who is a faithful Christian living in a hostile world like the one we live in today will certainly suffer from one degree to another for his name's sake. And Paul shared in the same conflict that Christ went through and he wrote a letter to the Philippians that I like to call the book of joy. And how was able to write the joy-filled letter as a prisoner, you ask? Through the power of God's Holy Spirit, and he had an authentic joy as he shared in the sufferings of Christ. That brought Paul authentic joy. In Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 10, remember Paul writing from prison, writing to the dear beloved church that he loved in Philippi, not knowing whether he's going to live on, the, on in the flesh or if today's the day they're lopping off his head. I don't know if I'm going to live or die. But he writes what's most important on his heart, and he says in verse 10, that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul's saying, I want to know the, the comfort that comes to me from the one who's endured everything that I will ever endure. I want to share in those sufferings that fellowship with Christ. And here we see this unbreakable bond between the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus, the suffering servant. And that, that beautiful communion that they shared with one another, being conformed to his death. And Paul says, I want to know him more. I want to, I want to know that more. Well, back to verse 13 and look at the, uh, the end of the verse. Notice what Peter says, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So here he's talking about the Lord's second coming, when his glory is revealed. So as you're faithfully suffering and experiencing persecution for uh, righteousness' sake in this life, bearing, as Paul did, the marks of Christ, knowing when he appears, you will really rejoice with a, a rapturous joy, a joyous outburst surpassing all other joys, Peter's point is pretty clear. If you suffer for him here and know him as Paul did, communing in the fellowship of his sufferings, know you can rejoice now because you will greatly rejoice then when all of his glory will be on full display. When every eye will see and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord every knee bowed, and your eternal reward as you shared in his sufferings by his grace will bring you an eternal reward of joy in Christ. Now, a couple months ago, we looked at all the texts that demonstrate how your eternal reward will to some degree reflect how faithful you suffered for the name. I mean, let's be honest. If, if you're a supposed um, secret Christian, yeah, you're probably not going to suffer all that much for the name of Christ. However, if you're a bold, faith-filled, gospel-sharing Christian, 
then yeah, there's a very good chance you're going to experience unjust suffering, but your eternal glory will reflect God's reward for that. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Our Lord said, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Listen to this. Be glad in that day and leap, the Bible says. Be so happy you're jumping around in joy. I'm being persecuted. I'm being persecuted. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. And so, as amazing as it is, we rejoice. We rejoice. Because the future reality, that as we share in the fellowship of his suffering now, we are gaining an eternal reward which will bring an eternal joy in Christ in glory. In fact, that's what Paul uh, caused Paul to say in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so, beloved, yes, you can leap with joy in the midst of your suffering because you can anticipate that eternal joy which will come to you by the grace of God. What a tremendous promise. So rejoice. Rejoice because of the future reality of eternal glory. Now, there's also the present reason for rejoicing as well. Notice what it says in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, this word um, insulted in the Greek is the word um, onidzo. It means to disgrace or to insult. This word is used to describe the animosity the world has for, for the name of Christ. So if you are insulted, if you are treated unfairly, unkindly, unjustly for the name of Christ, Peter says, yes, you are blessed. So rejoice in it. And if I was you, I would circle or underline a highlight for the name of Christ. For the name of Christ. Now what do we mean when we say for the name of Christ? Well, for stars, it means if you are insulted for the name of Christ, it's for being a representative of all that he is. But what this is mainly saying is it implies a public proclamation of Christ's name as the cause of the hostility that comes against you. It wasn't just that they bore the name of Christ in their hearts and minds secretly. It was that they proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, this verse might be better translated if you are insulted for proclaiming the name of Christ, you are blessed. That's the idea here. Now, if you've spent any time in the book of Acts, you probably noticed that term, the name. The name, the name is used very heavily uh, throughout the launch of the church. Everyone kept talking about the name. The religious leaders would get so upset at the disciples preaching that they'd say, stop talking about that name. The name. I don't want to hear that name anymore. And so when Peter's writing to these persecuted believers, they also have been preaching to their neighbors about this glorious name. 
And so eventually the name just became synonymous with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And if you had been preaching the name and identified with the name, then you were insulted for the name of Christ. In Acts chapter 5, after preaching in the public square, the apostles are called in to face the high priest and the entire Sanhedrin council of 70. And by verse 40, they've been told to stop preaching about the name. Just stop saying that name. Well, the disciples said, we must obey God rather than man. And they kept preaching the name of Christ. Eventually, they're dragged back in front of the council. They are flogged and ordered in verse 40 not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they were released. Verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And Peter, you'll remember, when he preached to the people, said to them back in chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter says, look, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are blessed. Now what does Peter mean that we're blessed? We throw that word around a lot. Is being blessed um, some kind of um, a feeling? Ooh, I feel blessed. No. Uh, look at verse 14 again. This is incredible. This is why I had to break it up into two sermons. I mean, this is, this is crazy. I mean, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because, oh, they got more for us, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Chew on that for a second. So he's not saying you're blessed um, as in this feeling. No, it's a non, it's not like a non-descriptive blessing. He's saying here, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So the blessing is not subjective uh, happiness. It is the objective presence of God. Do you get that? It's not um, subjective happiness. It is the objective presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God. You're blessed in the midst of suffering for righteousness sake because the spirit of glory has come upon you. That's incredible. Let's look at both parts of this because he says the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. First of all, let's be clear, there's only one Holy Spirit. Okay? So what does he mean then by the spirit of glory? Well, we could say it this way, and it might help. The Holy Spirit is glorious, okay? Everyone agree with that? The Holy Spirit is glorious. It is one of his essential attributes, the glory of the Spirit. And of course, this attribute exists within the entire triune Godhead, so it's a part of God's nature. And when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the glory of God's presence, it's when God reveals his presence sometimes as a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. 
as God led his people out of Egypt. The glory of the divine presence of God would be outside Moses' tent and the people would all bow down and, and worship. Sometimes this divine presence of God is referred to as the Shekinah, Shekinah glory. So when Peter says, when you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory rests upon you. He means you have the presence of God resting upon you. And then he says the spirit of glory and of God. You become like Moses whose face is shining from the glory of God. You become like the tabernacle which is so filled with the glory of God that no one could even go in there. You become like the temple when the glory of God is still occupied in the holy of holies. The presence of God was there. Here, though, God's presence comes in the form of His Spirit in a very unique way. The Spirit of glory and a God rests upon you. But what does He mean, the Spirit of glory of God rests upon you? What, what is He talking about? The best way to understand this is to see it in the illustration. We'll close with this. Turn to Acts chapter 6, and we'll look quickly at Stephen's story, and you will see what the glory of God does. Acts chapter 6, Stephen's a wonderful servant of God. Verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Obviously, he had the power of the Spirit of God. Verse 12, the elders and scribes came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Verse 13, they put forward false witnesses against them. Verse 15, it says, and fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of of an angel and I believe here we start to see the spirit of glory and of God rest upon him what's the face of an angel mean it might mean that his face glowed but I think that it means there was a certain peace that rested upon him a, a tranquility that comes in a situation like this only through the supernatural joy of the Lord and he's no longer affected by all this hostility that's surrounding him and then in Acts chapter 7 we see the conclusion of what happens he preaches that um, incredible sermon in verses 1 through 53 taking the council right through the entire Old Testament scriptures condemning them calls them stiff-necked uncircumcised in heart and ears always resisting the Holy Spirit killing those who announced the coming righteous one of Israel, whose betrayers and murders you have now become. Verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at Stephen. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He was literally unaffected by these guys. He was beholding the glory of God. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father. Verse 56, and Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know what's happening here. The spirit of glory and grace has come upon Stephen in such a powerful way that it's literally taken over him. 
The presence of God was such that he was no longer worried or concerned with the evil that he is surrounded by. 70, maybe 100, 200 men growling, just going crazy at him. I'm convinced this is the best picture we may have of the spirit of glory, the presence of God upon Stephen. So he looked beyond the hostility around him to the glory of God, verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, that's Stephen, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It is my conviction that he was absolutely oblivious to the harm that was going on around him. He's seeing heaven open. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's asking the Lord to receive him. He's being pummeled by rocks as they're crushing his earthly life out of him. And yet, what do we see? Verse 60. Then, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. In the midst of the severest persecution and suffering, God grants a special presence of his glory through the Holy Spirit as he rests upon the believer. Jesus assured his disciples of this. In Luke 12, he said to them, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I don't know if you've ever read the Fox's books of martyrs. Um, you'll ask yourself, how can these Christians be martyred for their faith and just so completely transcend the physical pain that's, that's going on? How can they praise God as they're being burnt at the stake? Right? How do you do that? How can you be singing hymns as, they're, as you're being burnt at the stake? How can you be forgiving your tormentors as you're being burnt at one of Nero's parties? One, because they see the richness of sharing the fellowship of suffering with Christ. And two, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So Peter says, if you want to be victorious in just unjust suffering, number one, expect it. Number two, rejoice in it. All right, points three and four, Lord willing. We'll make it back next week for um, the spirit of glory and of God indwells in every true born-again believer. Uh, he is our advocate, our comforter, our intercessor. He is the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of the living God who indwells in those who have put their faith in Christ alone. On the authority of God's word, I can call on you today to turn from your sins and to put your faith into this, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you heard today, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. This is the command I call you today to put your trust in this Christ to believe in his perfect, 
glorious finished work on the cross as he had paid for our sins and washed us clean. I call on that for you today. If you are in need of prayer this morning, you're welcome to come forward. As Katie said after, Elizabeth would be happy to stay after and pray with you as well. If you have any questions concerning the gospel, I'd love to be able to talk to you. You can come forward today. This is the time I want to invite you to please stand as we sing Glorious Day. <laughs>